You're listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Long days of travel, strange hotels, strange food. Yes, international assignments can include all of these but it can also offer the opportunity to make real change. And it can also create real change in yourself. I'm Pete Kiefer and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This month, we're talking to folks who have engaged in international rule of law assignments in countries around the world. We'll be answering the questions such as, did they make a difference? What were the political and cultural hurdles they had to overcome? Did they need to know languages? And what takeaways do these folks have for the rest of us? So let's join our panel. We're joined today by Norman Meyer, court leader contributor with 38 years of experience as a trial court administrator in the U.S. federal and state courts. Pam Harris, state court administrator for the Maryland court system. Pamela Ryder Leahy, court management consultant with 41 years of experience and most recently, chief executive officer for the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. John Sipperly, Senior Program Manager with the International Division of the National Center for State Courts. And Janet Cornell, Court Consultant with over 35 years of experience with both general and limited jurisdiction courts. Thank you all for joining today's podcast. Of all the assignments you've been on, can you tell me about one where you were able to apply the NACOM court competencies in an international context? How did it work out? Pam Harris? My most memorable international experience with addressing the, the NACOM core competencies were with initially with the original 10 core competencies, and that was in the Ukraine. I was there with an American delegation at the invitation of David Vaughn, who was chief of party with the Fair Justice Project, which is now the new justice program. And during that trip, when we were discussing court administration, David and I spoke extensively about the NACOM 10 core competencies and how uh, we were just about to embark upon refreshing the competencies. David was impressed with the 10 core competencies and thought that they could have a great relevance with the work that he was doing with the courts in the Ukraine. We spent a considerable amount of time discussing the competencies, how they could translate, and how the competencies could assist this project moving forward. Uh, we met with judges, we met with administrators, uh, we met with the government officials. It was really um, a, a rewarding experience because um, I'm sure Norman can comment and give you additional insight on projects there as well, but they, they are doing wonderful work in the Ukraine. And nevertheless, I returned to the Ukraine a few times thereafter, after that conversation um, on various initiatives. And during one trip, David presented me with the adoption of the 10 core competencies for the courts in the Ukraine. And for NACOM and the core competencies, I thought that that was one of the greatest acknowledgements of NACOM's work. As you all know, it's been said, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And they took those competencies and ran with them. And so I, I'm very proud of them for doing that. 
Tell us about some of the political and cultural challenges you faced on your assignments. Pam Harris? But on my first trip back in 2000, where I thought it would be my first and last trip, uh, we were asked to present on a seminar providing a detailed description of how the judicial system functioned in Maryland, and particularly the role of the trial court and the state court administrator, their relationships. You see, after the establishment of a new Russian constitution in 1993 and the creation of an entirely new court structure and the waning of their armed forces, Moscow distributed, dispersed 2,000 former military personnel to courts all over Russia and assigned them as court administrators with no training in court administration and with no input from judges in those courts, no input whatsoever. And as I'm sure many of you can imagine, there were trust issues between the judges and the administrators and issues of line of authority. <laughs> they were prevalent. And I know that many of you um, probably have experienced that in, in your own work. Pamela Ryder Leahy. Uh, we started a Canadian project in May of 2000 in Russia as well. And the first meeting we went to at the Judicial Department in Moscow before we fanned out, because we had already had been selected to work with selected communities that were or capital cities and other regions that were going to be our pilot court partners. And the first meeting, uh, there was a, a discussion about these new court administrators, the military people that were being dispersed to set up court administrator positions. And uh, I just innocently asked, what are some of the criteria that you look for in these court administrators? So, you know, are they generals? And there must be more because we all know you need more than a title to be a court administrator. And the very senior person in the room looked at me dead serious and said, well, first of all, you must be a man. So, I mean, I was about ready to jump out of my chair at that point. And uh, my project director from Ottawa, who was with us, he just kept looking at me going, zip it, zip it. I know you're going to explode, but just zip it. And, and that was a takeaway that uh, back in 2000, they really put a lot of emphasis on men being in senior positions which was really interesting because in Russia, a lot of women have had careers for many, many years. I mean, you think about previously in the uh, Soviet Union, how everybody was given an education and stuff and, and you know they were able to get to higher academics. Norman? I'd like to pile on to what Pam, Pam just talked about in Russia about the male, the, the, you know, the male, female and the discriminatory kind of behaviors and such. Mm -hmm. You know, the pilot courts we are working with on the American project, all of the chief judges were women. And one time I asked uh, Maria Sadalnikova in Nizhny Novgorod, what's the deal with all the chief judges, at least in the ones courts we've worked with, uh, are women? And she says, well, it's very simple. It, under the Soviet Union, being a legal career was actually not that high status. Being an advocate or a lawyer was not a very high privileged, high thing because basically the legal system was under the, the, the thumb of the Communist Party. It was the Communist Party that made all the decisions and, and they did telephone justice where they'd call up the judge and say, rule this way. And so uh, a lot of the, the women who wanted to go into legal career, they were the, the only avenue was sort of to be a judge and whatever. And so the majority of the judges in the Soviet Union were women, it's certainly in the trial courts, maybe not in the Supreme Court. And so when the Soviet Union broke up, they just grandfathered all the judges into the new court system, pretty much. And so a tremendous percentage of the judge, chief judges were women. And now they're in charge. 
And presiding judges in those courts, they ruled, they were in charge. Of, I mean, they, they were God in their courts. Whatever they said, that's what happened. And so further example, and I'll uh, judge Sedelna Kovanizhny as an example. Another thing they did in transitioning from the communist and Soviet era to the to the Russian court system was what facilities were you going to use for the courthouses? Uh, because they didn't really have much in the way of facilities. And they mandated that the former Communist Party regional buildings headquarters would be transferred over to the courts. And in Nizhny Novgorod, they refused to give it to the court. And so what Maria and her folks did is they, in, they went in the dead of night and occupied the building and refused to leave. And they seized the building <laughs> and took it over. And that was the courthouse that we worked with. <laughs> so this, this fascinating history about the transition from the Soviet Union to the Russian Federation and setting up their new court system. And, you know, uh, not from scratch, but uh, it was being, being, being part of that was just fascinating. And then the whole gender discrimination that was pretty rampant in other respects. Yes, the, the chief judges were women and they took care of these sorts of things, but but yeah, the, there was a lot of gender discrimination, that's for sure. We're going to break away here for a little outreach. Last month, Jeff Apperson, Vice President of the National Center for State Courts International Division, told us about the myriad of areas his division is involved in. Jeff, this month, tell us about some places where NACA members could get involved with the International Division in the future. I honestly believe that Latin America continues to, do, to be a large opportunity. And I noticed that some of the priorities have changed regarding funding. Also, we've been uh, engaged in the Caribbean at length, and we continue to build programs there with the International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Bureau of the State Department. So I would say the Caribbean and Latin America continue to grow. I would say those two regions and developmentally, we hope to basically build out some concept notes on how we can uh, collaborate more effectively with each country. And we do have, by the way, about 41 memorandums of understanding with countries, which are agreements with counterparts to support their uh, national directives. And so we are very involved in governance at many levels in many regions. So the outreach is good and we use a lot of your experts. Thanks, Jeff. I think we can all see that the National Center is deeply involved in international work. It's only going to provide NACA members with more opportunities in the future. Now let's return to our panel discussion. I know this is a question which is on the mind of a lot of folks. Do you have to know the language of the country in which you're assigned? Norman? The short and quick and easy answer for the assignments that I was on was no, uh, not mandatory on any project I've been on. There was always a staff um, interpreter there if you're making presentation to do um, interpretation or to translate documents, that sort of thing. But it's a huge advantage to have at least a some knowledge of the local language, if nothing else, for the courtesy of being hospitable and building a bond with the people that you're trying to do work with and, and uh, be a team with uh, the local folks. Now, I mentioned earlier that I, I was a Russian studies co-major in college, and so I had to take Russian. So I had had a couple of years of college Russian before I went on that 1999 trip to, uh, to Russia. Uh, and I'd also traveled again on my honeymoon there for a month, for a summer. So I, I, my, my Russian language skills are kind of low level conversational. I leverage that a lot 
in my work in Russia and also in, in other former Soviet states like uh, Ukraine. In Serbia, it, it served because the languages are similar enough that, that it, it translated uh, or, or was worked well. So um, no, not mandatory on projects I was on. I know there are some projects where positions where it's required um, and you have to have it, but it's a tremendous advantage to have facility in, in the language that's used in the country. Pamela Ryder Lee. I agree with Norman. You don't have to know the language, but it sure helps if you can have a conversation or, or just a social conversation with them. So when I started the Russian project in 2000, and I knew it was going to be an eight-year-long project, I actually went to university and took some credit courses in Russian language, and it gave me enough of a base that I was able to give a toast, because uh, as Pam Harris had said, there are many toasts at many dinners. And I, so I was able to give my toast in Russian. I was able to give introductions to um, my seminars in Russian. And then, you know, at coffee breaks, stand around and, and actually have some basic language. And while I had some limited uh, speaking, I understood much more. I was able to stand by and listen to conversations and get the total gist of it. Whereas if I had tried to uh, participate, my pronunciation of some of the words might not have been correct for that uh, like legal discussion particularly. So it's not necessary, but it, it certainly helps if you can have at least a little bit of comfort in a social setting for sure. Janet? No, it's not required to know the language. In my engagements in the Pacific Islands, all of the teaching and instruction was in English but there were lots of languages used by the participants. So the group discussions that they had and the exercise work was sprinkled with Palauan, Marshallese, Chamorro, and any of the like nine different languages of Micronesia. So it was very interesting. Sometimes they got stuck on one of the typical American-based words we might use. And so I had to use other ways to share with them what the meaning of a particular word was. Another example, Norman and I were on an engagement in Belgrade, Serbia, and we did use interpreters. It added a bit of coordination in terms of doing one-on-one -on -one interviews or having group meetings. Once you figure out that's how it's going to play out, you just have to go in with the mindset that there's going to be a bit of a lag or a coordination when you want to say something and when you want to elicit some feedback from the participants. I forgot to say something. So yes, having a knowledge of the language is really helpful, but something that's happened in the world in the last 20 to 30 years, and that is there's an amazing number of people who speak English who was not the case. I mean, when I traveled to the Soviet Union in 1976, nobody spoke English, okay? And so one of the big surprises in going back in 1999 was some people spoke English, but by the time 10 to 12 years later, I was finishing it up, it was amazing. If you needed to get directions on the street, walk up to anybody lower than like 25 years old, or certainly a teenager in Russia, and they would know English because it's a, it's a language that's taught in all the high schools. And just wherever I've been in other countries, the penetration of English as an international language of business and culture um, has made it so that there is an ease of getting around and, and doing things um, and communicating even with the court folks uh, who know more English than certainly was in the past. And I just want to expand on what Janet said about getting used to that lag between, uh, you know, when it's being interpreted. 
as a consultant, that's actually can be a good thing because I tend to take a lot of handwritten notes and that leg actually gives me a little bit more time to take my notes and write things down. I find that to be beneficial at times. Pam Harris? I've always had interpreters in any country where English wasn't readily spoken, but I think it, it may depend on the project and what you want to do, really. There are people out there Kimonics, even the National Center for that matter, you know, they, they have people that if you're in a Spanish speaking, it just, it depends what the projects are looking for. Certainly, if you want to do something in country, I'm, I'm sure it would help to have an interpreter. But I, as I indicated earlier, I thought my very first trip to Russia was my last. I thought my first trip to Ukraine was my last. I wasn't like Pam. We didn't have a plan, a multi-year plan at the time. However, I made 15 trips to Russia, and with each trip, I thought that was going to be my last trip. Had I known that I would be making multiple trips and having multi-year relationships with my Russian counterparts, both over the pond and here, I would have started taking Russian lessons years before I did. I mean, I did start them, but many, many years later. So I, that is something that um, I'm disappointed in, in myself that I didn't start it earlier, but I had no idea that I would return 15 times at, at all. But I, I just think it depends on the country and the project that you might be interested in, in working on, whether you're going to have interpreters or not. John? Thanks, Peter. Uh, as others have mentioned, language is, of course, welcome, and language skills are an important, I think, distinguishing factor for people who might want to get involved, particularly if you're proficient or fluent in a language, it doesn't necessarily help to have had prior study if, if, for instance, you don't have a level of proficiency to work in the language. But it does help, for instance, as Norman mentioned, if you're working in translation and maybe you have studied the language before, uh, to have that prior understanding. I think one of the important distinctions about language is that we're really looking at those who both have uh, experience in language, but also the mere fact of having worked in court organizations and understanding court cultures and what makes courts work and the challenges that courts face, that understanding really does transcend language barriers. So we shouldn't let language be a barrier to getting interested or becoming involved, but certainly it's helpful. And as always, we are, for those who are working with me, I work in primarily in Spanish, but for others, we're working in French and in Arabic and Russian language contexts. And we're interested to hear if you speak an, another language as well, beyond Russian, French, Spanish, uh, Arabic, because there are always opportunities. And so we really do encourage um, those with language skills to let us know. Of all your assignments, tell us one takeaway that you can share with the folks who tuned in today. Norman? I'm going to cheat. I've got two. I'm sorry. I just can't narrow it to, to, to one. <laughs> the first thing is how much I learned that it was, it's bilateral. I mean, we're there as consultants. We're there to share. We're trying to do a management review, set up a pilot core, do model this, model that, whatever, apply the NACOM core competencies. But just by being there, I learned so much about how another court or another country does things and it expanded my brain about the possibilities and the, the solutions and the, the workarounds and how to deal with 
circumstances that we just don't have um, in at least where I've worked in the United States. And so it, it's learning from not, not only the, the, that technical side and the court side, but just culturally, it expanded my horizons and made, I think made me a better person, better international citizen of the world, that I understand the globe we're in and the challenges that people face, people who are in, in countries, post-conflict countries or developing their courts or just whatever. So I, I just, it was a huge learning experience and I'm grateful for that. And then the, and then the second thing is how fulfilling it was to work on rule of law and expanding the rule of law beyond the confines of the court that I was working in. And then yes, that's fulfilling in and of itself. I'm so, so deeply committed to the rule of law in the, in the United States and such, but to be able to apply that and to partner with, as some of my compatriots here on this panel have said, to partner with people and to see the, 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 how committed they are to making things better in their country, for themselves, for their families, and to apply the rule of law principles to advance uh, their society. So those are the, the, the two biggies uh, for me in, in taking away from that. So it's just so fulfilling to, to be part of the, all of this. Pamela Ryder-Leahy. I just wanna narrow it right into one specific thing of how something small can actually help citizens. And we were working in Kaluga, which is a, uh, a region in Russia. And again, these are pilot courts. So we're there for the long term. You know, it was uh, started out to be five years, became an eight year project. And um, I was following the paperwork. So when citizens would come to the registry, they actually, because I interviewed some citizens, again, through an interpreter. And one of their complaints was that if they wanted a copy of their divorce decree, for whatever reason, they wanted a copy, they would come to the court and fill out an application and were told to come back in 24 hours to see if it was approved that they could get a copy of their own divorce decree. So I said, okay, well, met with the, the public. They told me this, talked to court staff, they confirmed it. So I said, what is the process of the 24 hour period? They said, well, it has to go uh -huh. to the chief judge and he has to review the application and approve it. So I went to the chief judge's office and asked if I could meet with them. And I, I said, I understand that you have to approve all of the requests for a people, for citizens to get a copy of their divorce decree. And he puffed out his chest, he was so proud, he goes, well, yes, of course I do. That's my function. And I said, how many do you not approve? Again, the chest puffed right out. He said, 100% get approved. And I said, so what are you doing in terms of reviewing this stack of papers that come to your desk unnecessarily? And he goes, um, well, I don't really know. So I said, well, why does this have to come to you? This is like purely clerical function. He goes, yeah, it's taking a lot of my time. You're right. So I went back to the court the next day and uh, court staff were ecstatic. They greeted me and said that when they arrived at work that morning, the chief judge had issued an order that from now on, all of the applications for copies of their divorces could be given to the citizens without there being a review because it was their own document they were looking for. So that's just a little tiny takeaway of something that just by asking some questions in the country resulted in an immediate change for the better for the citizens and even for the court staff who were 
frustrated with the application process and taking it to the chief judge and bringing it back and the citizen having to come back to court for a second trip. Janet? You know, my takeaway to share with others is to know your own tolerance of being in fluid situations. Less formality, structures that have to change, and different cultures. Uh, be flexible and be ready to be flexible. Be ready for long, long days of tiring travel to the destination where you arrive in the dark of night. Be ready for variations in the hotel accommodations, in the food, in the amenities. All of those things are very different. And my own contribution to the unique food is fruit bat or sea turtle. Um, all these things are part of the great adventure of going there. But my takeaway was a reminder to be aware of the flexibility and the humility with all of the changing scenes and scenarios on an engagement. John? The, the ability to listen and, and to, to share has been, I think, one of the kind of distinguishing features that we look for because when we look at the most successful programs, be it pilot courts or model courts, the ones that are the most successful are where there has been an opportunity to listen at the beginning and then to learn and adapt as they go on because we are not necessarily defining what success could or should look like, but rather others are enabling taking tools and methods that we may use, but adapting them in their own circumstances. And in that sense, they're creating the success that they want to see for themselves rather than the other way around. Pam Harris? I'm, I'm gonna tell another story. Just as the Russian invasion of the Ukraine occurred, we hosted a delegation of judges from the Ukraine uh, through the Open World Program of the Library of Congress. And following the completion of each trip, that program requires that the delegations fill out an exit survey regarding their experience while they were in the United States. And one of the questions was this, uh, please tell us of an unexpected episode, event, contact or conversation that significantly changed your thinking or attitude and describe how it may have changed your group's view. And I'm gonna tell you their answer, but Open World sent me this immediately. And we very rarely saw the exit questionnaires and they sent it to me with a letter and I'm not gonna go into all of that. This was their answer. There were no episodes as such, but the conversations and experiences were extensive. Most importantly, the trip in general has changed our perception of the words freedom and democracy. In the state of Maryland and the United States, you can feel freedom even in the air. So their experience was formed in Maryland, but was forged by our United States justice system in which all of you contribute and will have an opportunity to strengthen in the future. I, you know, this is why court administration is so important to our nation's court and is work worth doing. I just can't say enough of that. The stories our panelists have told us are engaging. 
But before we sign off, let's hear from Michelle Oaken, who will give us some logistical information for those folks who have gotten hooked on the prospect of international work. Michelle, where can folks find information about the International Committee on the NACOM website? Under committees and under membership, you will find the international tab. You can find our agendas and minutes under that tab, under committees. The committee generally meets quarterly unless we're working on a specific project that might require additional meetings. And those that could, might be interested in joining our committee, feel free to contact me for specific meeting information and any other details regarding the International Committee. My thanks to Janet Cornell, Norman Meyer, Pam Harris, Pamela Ryder Leahy, and John Sipperly for their stories and their experiences about international work. This is an area that I know captures the imagination of a lot of NACOM members. My thanks also to Jeff Apperson and Michelle Oaken for filling us in on the NACOM International Committee and the international work that is being done by the National Center for State Courts. My thanks finally to you court professionals tuning in to today's episode. I hope that we've tempted you to join the International Committee and possibly volunteer for an international assignment. Join us in July for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.